most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Wednesday, April 20th, 2022, the 455th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Before we get started, I just wanted to mention the great company, MyPillow, run by the American hero, Mike Lindell. MyPillow is a great American company. They are also a partner of this show. And so I thank them for their support. And I thank you for your support. If you would like to support the show, support the great Patriot Mike Lindell and support a great American company. And you'd like to make your home a little more comfortable. Go to MyPillow.com. Use the promo code reasonable. You can get huge discounts on all sorts of products across MyPillow.com. I have the mattress pad. I have the Giza dream sheets. I have the MyPillows, some different sizes just so that they can be around. I can always grab the right size when I need it. You know, when you wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, ah, that pillow's too big. Let me go for a smaller one. I got it right there. It's perfect. So if you want to do that, you can go to mypillow.com. You can get up to 66% off all sorts of different things. And you can get a free gift. Mike Lindell's book, his autobiography with your order, mypillow.com, promo code, reasonable. Now let's start out with the Atlantic, a super elitist communist propaganda outlet that was purchased a few years ago by Steve Jobs' widow, Lorraine Powell Jobs. And now it just shills for the global communist order. The Atlantic is like a storied publication. It's actually kind of sad to see what has happened to that outlet because it is just flat out terrible now. And I'm not saying that every writer there is terrible. There are some that are decent, but overall it is a cesspool of globalist conspiracy theories. And of course, rampant elitism that is completely unjustifiable in any sort of meritocratic sense, but they don't care about that. They have had a string of articles this week that aren't really for anything other than calling Trump supporters stupid. That is where this publication is at right now. There was a big one from Ibram X. Kendi over the weekend. He is the purveyor of anti-racism, which is exactly like racism 
except the good kind, because it's racism in service of communism and racism in service of communism is really just in service of equality. Therefore, it can't be racism. Therefore, go ahead. Jonathan Haidt published an article today about how we are in the stupidest era ever. And of course, it's our fault. And then there's this genius little piece from Monday with the headline, Trump supporters explain why they believe the big lie by Sarah Longwell. Some 35% of Americans, including 68% of Republicans, believe the big lie pushed relentlessly by former President Donald Trump and amplified by conservative media that the 2020 presidential election was stolen. They think that Trump was the true victor and he should still be in the White House today. And if you're saying 35%, it's got to be higher than that, right? Well, yes, it is higher than that. But Sarah Longwell doesn't care about whether or not the readers of The Atlantic are receiving accurate information. So she's referring to a poll from January 27th, 2021. And she's still speaking in the present tense. 35% of Americans believe that's what she said, even though she's talking about a survey from 15 months ago. And it's possible that she just wanted to use some sort of reference point that would actually help her make her point. But that's entirely inaccurate. She might actually believe. And I'm starting to think this about some of these elitist liberals. I mean, as I've said many times, the two characteristics that are exhibited by all of these people are narcissism and incompetence. And inside their little liberal bubble, this all makes sense. They are so narcissistic that they actually believe people think that they are smart and they agree with their ideas. We talked about this yesterday with that MSNBC article where the guy believes that even though the Democrats are shedding support every day, every day, no one supports the agenda. It is still the Democrats responsibility to do whatever they can to pass the agenda that Americans do not want and honestly did not vote for. But inside that little narcissistic bubble where they're right about everything is an absolute circus of incompetence where they don't know anything and they just continue proceeding as if all the anti-factual nonsense inside their bubble of narcissism and incompetence is actually legitimate information. It's totally possible that this writer has not updated her perspective on what the nation actually thinks about the election in 15 months. She might have just accepted, oh, it's 35%, the same 35% that always supported Trump, all those dupes and morons and racists in that 35% that supported Trump. Oh, isn't it cute? They still believe the big lie. So Sarah Longwell is publishing this, and she is still referring to the fact of the stolen election in 2020 as the big lie. That is how her people know it. And it's worth taking a second to refer to the concept of the big lie and just 
remember what exactly that is. Now, this quote is attributed to Joseph Goebbels, but there is some dispute about that because people, I think, don't like to believe that this is actually the point of view on the big lie. If you tell a lie big enough and keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it. The lie can be maintained only for such time as the state can shield the people from the political, economic and or military consequences of the lie. It thus becomes vitally important for the state to use all of its powers to repress dissent for the truth is the mortal enemy of the lie. And thus, by extension, the truth is the greatest enemy of the state. Now, whether or not Goebbels said that this is the concept referred to when anyone is talking about the big lie. For the big lie to actually work, you have to have the power of the state on your side. The people, all separate with their own ideas, cannot come together in one idea and actually form the big lie and then keep the big lie in place. That is not a possibility for the people. It is entirely a concept that must be enforced by the state. The people have no means of enforcing the big lie. We can't get the rest of us to just agree with stuff because we say it over and over and over and over again. That is not possible. The big lie is not believed because we have state power convincing Trump supporters that the big lie is actually true. But on the other hand, you have the entirety of culture on the other side saying the big lie, the big lie, the big lie. And they do enforce the idea that the election was not stolen, that Joe Biden actually got 81 million real legal American votes. They enforce that through all different means. They use propaganda. They use censorship. They use state power. They even had a Reichstag fire incident in the very violent insurrection that does serve as a mirror to the same sort of regime in Nazi Germany. And of course, they're supporting Nazis right now in Ukraine. So it's really not a stretch. And it's not difficult to see which side is which. But we're going to pretend that the actual big lie is that Trump won. For many of Trump's voters, the belief that the election was stolen is not a fully formed thought. It's more of an attitude or a tribal pose. They know something nefarious occurred, but can't explain how or why. What's more, they're mystified and sometimes angry that other people don't feel the same. So you got that? Trump supporters don't know why they believe the election was stolen. They just believe it. It's a feeling. And they get upset if you don't feel it, too. They can't show you how the election was stolen because they're dupes and morons. And they only express their thoughts about the 2020 election in in grunts and scrawl on tree bark. A woman from Wisconsin told me, I can't really put my finger on it, but something just doesn't feel right. A man from Pennsylvania said something about it just didn't seem right. A man from Arizona said it didn't smell right. Well, what else did they say, Sarah? Is that the only thing they said? Did they not have anything else to offer? They didn't mention the Arizona audit. They didn't mention mail-in ballots. 
They just said they didn't believe it. Is that what we're supposed to accept? The exact details of the story vary. Was it Hugo Chavez who stole the election or the CIA or Italian defense contractors? Outlandish claims like these seem to have made this conspiracy theory more durable, not less. Well, hey, Sarah, have you looked into any of those things or are you just happy to make them sound insane without looking into them? Regardless of plausibility, the more questions that are raised, the more mistrustful Trump voters are of the official results. Well, that's because with those questions that are raised, there also comes a series of facts pointing to the theft of the 2020 election. And those facts, once you continue to view them, become overwhelming because there are actually so many of them and the evidence is so strong. I was talking to a liberal friend yesterday who is still in California. We were just catching up via text. We haven't talked in a year and a half or so. And she was saying how shocking some of my ideas were and, you know, how she likes to get both sides. And I said, you know, to have both sides, if you are going to take that approach that you want to get both sides of an argument, right, and figure out where the truth lies somewhere in the middle. First, you have to actually define what the sides are and to think that they are Democrat and Republican or liberal and conservative is already making a mistake because then you will think you can just read an article on the liberal side like MSNBC and then read an article on the conservative side like Fox News or Breitbart. And somewhere in the middle, they will agree about some real facts and then you can figure out the right path through. But that's not the intent of either of those sides. The only sides that matter are, are you a globalist? Are you doing things and professing political positions that support and empower the one world global communist order that is very much represented by the World Economic Forum and very much represented by the things they're actually trying to do in the world? Or do you care about your nation and what's best for the people? Those are the two sides. And it's ultimately a moral question. You actually have to get down to the roots of things and say, why is this good? Who is it good for? Why are those the people that we should be serving? And so I said to her, forget about the two sides thing. Think about what your political points of view are. What are your positions on a series of issues? And then ask yourself, if I went down to zero information on these issues and I just started researching what these issues were about, would I bring myself back to the point I'm at right now? And the truth is, by and large, unless you have become awake to the realities of the world, there is absolutely no way you can rebuild positions like that. Imagine having to prove that Joe Biden received 81 million real legal American votes. No one can do that. And that's why no one has done it. The television told us what the answer was. Then Chris Krebs from CISA told us that it was a very safe and secure election. Some judges turned down some cases, not all of them, not all of them by a long stretch. Trump's side has won plenty of these cases, and some of the cases are still open and ongoing. And then Bill Barr told us he had not yet seen proof of election fraud so widespread that it would threaten the outcome. 
And that's it. Four pieces of information. None of them can be backed up. In fact, the judges didn't see the evidence. Chris Krebs was clearly lying. We don't know what Bill Barr had seen at that point or what Bill Barr's larger role in all of this might have been. But Bill Barr not seeing evidence does not mean evidence does not exist. Just like the courts dismissing Trump cases without seeing evidence doesn't mean that the courts found there was no fraud. But don't tell a Biden voter that because they have no idea what to do with it. They'll say, you're stupid. You're crazy. You're a conspiracy theorist. You're telling the big lie. I can't believe that you believe that. That is their entire answer. There is nothing more. They could never build that idea back up from nothing because there is no proof that they had a clean election. There is no proof that they have 81 million real legal American votes for Joe Biden. And of course, they have nowhere close to that. And we've seen it over and over and over again in every single place that has looked. And none of that is even getting into the legality of the elections that were run in all these various states. Some have already been deemed illegal. Wisconsin and Pennsylvania still in the courts. But courts in both states have already decided that the election processes used in 2020 were unconstitutional and unlawful, which means the elections in 2020 were unconstitutional and unlawful. That's why they're arguing about whether or not you can decertify. It's not hard for us to rebuild the case that the 2020 election was stolen because all of the evidence is on our side. They have no evidence, which is why they don't try to use evidence. Instead, they just call it the big lie. Perhaps that's because the big lie has been part of their background noise for years. Remember that Trump began spreading the notion that America's elections were rigged in 2016 when he thought he would lose. Many Republicans firmly believed that the Democrats would steal an election if given the chance. When the 2020 election came and Trump did lose, his voters were ready to doubt the outcome. Now, how about that revision of history? Trump began spreading the notion that Americans' elections were rigged in 2016. We've been hearing about rigged elections in America for at least the last two decades. Liberals and progressives and other various global communists never got over the 2000 election that they said was stolen from Al Gore by George W. Bush hanging chads in Florida. They wanted to recount three Florida counties and they said, no, let's go ahead and recount the whole state. And Democrats said, no, we can't do that. We can't recount the whole thing. We just need these three counties. Don't you see? We're going to pull a win out in these three counties. That'll count as a win. And then Al Gore is president. And of course, they thought that John Kerry was robbed in 2004. Well, and then the savior Obama came in for two elections. And surely there couldn't have been any election fraud there because the Democrats won, right? And then that brings us to 2016. And in the aftermath of the 2016 election, which Donald Trump knew could potentially be stolen because Donald Trump knew about election fraud before he came into office and nothing could be more obvious. And of course, he knew that the election in some way would be rigged because Hillary Clinton was already engaged with the FBI and the CIA under Joe Biden and Barack Obama's full knowledge. She was engaged in the Russiagate hoax, trying to link Trump's campaign to Russia, saying that Trump 
was a Manchurian candidate, a puppet for Putin. And for years, they pursued the idea that Trump was an illegitimate candidate. That's what the Mueller report was for. And a bunch of Democrats said in many different venues that the machines were hackable and they could have and may have been hacked for Trump's benefit. And then Stacey Abrams in 2018 claimed to be the winner of the Georgia governor's election, and she still will not say that she lost fair and square. But Trump did it and Trump supporters did it because they were so dumb. His voters were ready to doubt the outcome. Well, his voters were ready to doubt the outcome because we watched all year as the Democrats began exploiting the election by changing election law outside of their state's constitution as now proven by the courts. That's why we doubted it. We doubted it because we could see the abuses that were going on with the mail-in voting process. None of that was needed for COVID, but they did it anyway. They told us it was for COVID. It clearly wasn't. So what are we supposed to think about the election? Smart person at the Atlantic. Some Trump voters looked at the numbers and couldn't make sense of them. Oh, yeah, we don't know what numbers are. What is that? Is that a number floating by? Is that a is that a gajillion? Sorry, we can't do math. How could so many more people have voted in 2020 than in 2016? Yeah, that is a great question, actually. How did we increase the number of voters by a full 20%? How did that happen? And how did it happen so extremely in places that are run by Democrats? How did that happen? Huh? Go ahead and tell me. A man from North Carolina, when asked why he thought the election was stolen, said there was 10 million more votes for Trump in this last election than he got in 2016. You're telling me that Joe Biden got that many? That is actually a very good argument, but they're not going to answer that question. They're just going to say that asking it is stupid. Don't you understand? We made it easy for everyone to vote with mail in. So they were all real. To the extent that big lie believers try to explain their skepticism over millions more people voting for Biden than for Trump, they often point to relative crowd sizes at rallies. As the man from North Carolina put it, I personally went to Trump rallies that were filling stadiums and then Biden can't even fill a freaking library. Like, no, it's not true. I don't believe it. Don't buy it. And there's no commentary from Sarah Longwell here. You're just supposed to understand that that guy's stupid and he just doesn't understand how things work. That's why he believes something so crazy. Another common refrain is that the votes flipped in the middle of election night. Trump supporters went to bed thinking that their guy had won and then woke up to a different reality, which to them was startling and deeply suspicious. A woman from Georgia told me when I went to bed, Trump was so in the lead and then I got up. And he's not in the lead. I mean, that's crazy. And she's right. That is crazy. All of the margins that it took for Biden to claim victory happened in the middle of the night at the same time after we were told that the vote counting had stopped. <laughs> Gosh, why would anyone doubt something so clearly honest and true? Long before Election Day, the media had warned about a red mirage and alerted Americans to the possibility that Trump would have a large lead on election night, only to have it dissipate as mail-in ballots were counted. 
But if you were watching Fox News, you probably didn't hear any of this. Instead, Trump, MAGA-friendly politicians, and conservative media outlets were priming voters to see a conspiracy. You see, you are stupid. Because you're a Trump supporter, you don't know anything about the world except what Fox News tells you. So you couldn't have generated these thoughts. You couldn't have been prepared, for instance, by things like the Transition Integrity Project, something that the Democrats and global communists prepared themselves for their after-election program on how they would secure a Joe Biden victory, despite the fact that Joe Biden could not and would not win a fair and legal election. They actually war-gamed all of this, and then they executed their plan. And then after that, they revised all of that history in Molly Ball's article in Time magazine. It's actually really easy to track all of this stuff. You don't even have to be as smart as all of the communist propagandists at the Atlantic. And again, what is really going on here with this information? Is Sarah Longwell actually this dumb and actually this addicted to the central narrative that she could write this and not even realize how detached from reality she is? Or does she know all this and she's just trying to convince the child brains who read The Atlantic that all of this is for nothing? It's really hard to tell. Trump correctly assumed that the majority of the mail-in ballots that would be counted late at night would go to Biden. So he cast mail-in ballots as fraudulent almost by definition. The woman from Georgia told me that mail-in ballots were a crock without elaborating further. Well, Sarah, did you have an answer for why mail-in ballots are very safe and very secure? Let's see. Mail-in ballots are the style of voting most open to fraud. That was found by the Carter Baker Commission. That was a bipartisan commission. Mail-in ballots being the style of voting most open to fraud is accepted fact. It is common knowledge. It is not in dispute. So if you then go and mail them out to everyone, including the millions more voters that appear on voter registries than are even eligible to vote in a state, if you send them all mail-in ballots and then allow ballot harvesting and actually concoct schemes for ballot harvesting. And then you allow drop boxes to be put in place by Mark Zuckerberg, who is quite clearly supporting Democrats in a whole range of ways. If you allow all these millions of extra mail-in ballots to be picked up by Democrat employees and then put in drop boxes paid for by Mark Zuckerberg, and then you count them without matching signatures and disregarding voter ID. Well, yeah, mail-in ballots start to seem pretty insecure. Isn't it strange that Sarah Longwell, in the 15 months that she still believes only 35% of the country understands that Joe Biden didn't win, has still never located a Trump supporter who can explain all of this to her? Well, I would imagine some of these Trump supporters probably could and probably would have if she didn't get the little soundbite she wanted. Oh, Mary from North Carolina says it doesn't feel right. Ah, imagine when they referred to Trump supporters, you just substituted in black people, right? Let's try it in this next paragraph. Attempts to set the record straight tend to backfire. When you tell black people that the election wasn't stolen, some of them tally that as evidence that it was stolen. 
A black woman from Arizona told me, I think what convinced me more that the election was fixed was how vehemently they have said it wasn't. These black people aren't bad or unintelligent people. The problem is that the big lie is embedded in their daily life. They hear from black politicians, black peers, and black friendly media outlets. And from these sources, they hear the same false claims repeated ad infinitum. Now we are at the point where to be a black person means to believe the big lie. And as long as black people leading the party keep promoting and indulging the big lie, that will continue to be the case. If I've learned anything from my focus groups, it's that something doesn't have to make sense for black people to believe it's true. Imagine that was what she really wrote. There is no argument in this entire article that the election was safe and secure. She assumes that is something everybody knows. Well, what claim stands in opposition to the thing everybody knows? Well, that's the big lie. And she doesn't want to call people dishonest or stupid. They're just part of a cult. They just don't understand what's going on. They don't watch the news. They don't know things that the rest of us know. They don't have, they don't have access to the Atlantic and CNN. So, of course, they didn't know about the red mirage. They didn't know that Trump would be winning on Election Day and then the Democrats would try to steal it after that. Trump voters were totally clueless to that. All of this is just bigotry. That's what it is. And they are able to protect the big lie by saying that it's violent. And why do they get to say it's violent? Well, because of the very violent insurrection, of course. Now, I have said a bunch of times that the January 6th committee is illegitimate, and I'm obviously not the only one to make this observation, but it's illegitimate because the committee wasn't legitimately formed. The minority leader, Kevin McCarthy, proposed a group of congressmen who would represent the Republicans on the January 6th committee. All of those people were rejected and Nancy Pelosi chose Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney. And that's it. So it's a panel with a bunch of Democrats and two Republicans. There is nothing legitimate about the January 6th committee. And it's good that there are people out there challenging them. One of those people challenging them is Steve Bannon, because Steve Bannon is in the process of defending himself against a contempt of Congress claim. And his lawyers filed a motion to dismiss on Friday. And I want to share some of that with you because this could get really interesting. Defendant Stephen K. Bannon, through his undersigned counsel, respectfully requests that this court dismiss the indictment. In support of this motion, we state as follows. On November 12th, 2021, Mr. Bannon was charged in a two count indictment based on his conduct after receiving a subpoena dated September 23rd, 2021, issued by the select committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. Mr. Bannon now seeks dismissal of both counts based on defects in instituting the prosecution and defects in the indictment. A court considering a motion to dismiss an indictment assumes the truth of the indictment's factual allegations. So first, they argue the subpoena was not lawfully issued. The indictment must be dismissed because the subpoena commanding Mr. Bannon to appear and produce documents was not lawfully issued. Mr. Bannon cannot be prosecuted for failing to comply with an unlawful subpoena. The Constitution vests the legislative power in Congress. 
Article one provides that each house may determine the rules of its proceedings. And I'm going to jump around a bit just to skip some of the legalese. The rules provide an essential safeguard because they operate as a check and control on the actions of the majority. When a committee violates the rules by exceeding its authorized power in a way that threatens the liberty interest of an individual, the judiciary must protect that individual. The House rules that apply to this case were established on January 4th, 2021, when the House approved House Resolution 8, adopting the rules for the 117th Congress. The House rules establish certain committees to which the full House has delegated much of its power to act, as well as rules that govern the procedures of those committees. A committee may only act within the authority that has been delegated to it by the full House. This delegation of authority to a committee is set forth in the resolution establishing the committee. If a committee acts beyond its delegated authority, that action is ultra vires and invalid. And I'm going to jump a little further down. The select committee that issued the subpoena to Mr. Bannon was not composed consistent with the authority granted to the select committee by the full house because its membership was not authorized. The subpoena to Mr. Bannon was not valid and the indictment must be dismissed. Here is the house rule on the appointment of members. The speaker shall appoint 13 members to the select committee, five of whom shall be appointed after consultation with the minority leader. The word shall provides no discretion to the speaker. Nonetheless, the speaker did not follow this mandatory language. In an unprecedented step, the speaker rejected the nominees suggested by the minority leader and instead appointed nine members to the select committee of her own choosing. In a political body such as the House, procedural safeguards have been established to protect the rights of deposition witnesses and the rights of the minority party. These procedures are especially important where, as here, a select committee was created to inquire into events that took place following a disputed presidential election. Nonetheless, the speaker decided to appoint members of the select committee in a manner that violated the authorizing resolution. The result was that the select committee's membership was composed, according to the minority leader, to advance the speaker's political objectives without regard for the rights of the minority to act under a lawful grant of authority, however, the select committee must conform strictly to its resolution. Because the select committee was not composed as authorized, the subpoena to Mr. Bannon is invalid and the indictment must be dismissed. In the next section, they argue that the select committee exceeded its subpoena authority by violating rules which mandate ranking minority member consultation and providing protective rules to the deponent, the person being deposed. On its face, the indictment fails to allege that the subpoena was issued to Mr. Bannon in compliance with the subpoena authority granted to the select committee, which requires consultation with the ranking minority member. The select committee has no ranking minority member. Because the select committee violated the grant of subpoena authority provided by the full house, the indictment must be dismissed. And I'm going to jump down a little further, but think about what we have so far, right? The committee is not legitimate because the speaker appointed nine members to the select committee rather than 13. And she refused the entire slate of Kevin McCarthy's proposed members instead using just Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. So the entire committee is illegitimate. That is what's being argued. After that, the argument is that the subpoena 
is illegitimate because there is no ranking member on the committee and there's not. Then they argue that the subpoena was a misguided and unconstitutional effort to make an example of Mr. Bannon. House Resolution 503 describes three functions of the select committee, namely to one, investigate the facts, circumstances and causes relating to the domestic terrorist attack on the Capitol Two, to identify, review and evaluate the causes of and the lessons learned from the domestic terrorist attack on the Capitol. This is hilarious. And three, to issue a final report to the House containing such findings, conclusions, and recommendations for correct measures described in the subsection C as it may deem necessary. The subpoena issued to Mr. Bannon, however, did not advance any of those authorized functions. Instead, the subpoena was an unconstitutional attempt to usurp the executive branch's authority to enforce the law and an effort to impede Mr. Bannon's First Amendment rights to association and free speech. As made clear in the indictment, the select committee targeted Mr. Bannon because on January 5th, 2021, he was present at the Willard Hotel with others and because he made statements on his podcast about what might occur on January 6th, 2021. Select committee members have articulated that Mr. Bannon was targeted to send a message to other potential deponents. The select committee is not authorized to issue a subpoena for that purpose. Another element of the subpoena and of the committee's illegitimacy. And of course, this goes on for many, many more pages, which I do not need to share with you. But I wanted to bring that up because look at where we are with all of this. The big lie turns into the very violent insurrection. They needed the very violent insurrection, not only to cover up an illegitimate certification of the electoral college, And each state's slate of electors, despite the fact of overwhelming evidence of fraud around the country, they pushed that through while everyone was distracted with the very violent insurrection. Then because there was a very violent insurrection, they get to attribute blame and responsibility for the very violent insurrection. Obviously, who did it? Trump supporters, not F, not the FBI, not FBI informants. Not Black Lives Matter Antifa, not anyone else, just Trump supporters. Trump supporters did it. No matter how much evidence there is of the other side, it's the Trump supporters did it. Now, there are 14,000, 13,000 hours of security footage from the Capitol that we're still not allowed to see. That security footage shows Capitol Police and other law enforcement officials beating and killing Trump supporters. That exists in there. Yes, it does. It has them pushing them off two-story walls, just right off. Doesn't matter whose lives are these. Oh, they're just Americans' lives. Doesn't matter. We're the Capitol Police. We're Nancy Pelosi's Praetorian Guard, and we have orders. We will be rewarded for our violence against our fellow citizens by Nancy Pelosi. We're going to get more money. We're going to get to go on TV. We'll get to write books. I'm going to show everybody my neck tattoos. We'll get to watch Adam Kinzinger cry, and then maybe we can cry in response. And then who knows? Maybe we'll end up at a uh, cocktail bar just, you know, around happy hour. Not a big thing. Going to be kind of mellow. Not a lot of people are going to be there. We'll find a dark corner. Maybe we'll cry a little bit with Adam, and then maybe we'll find a bathroom stall, and who knows what happens. It all started with a neck tattoo. 
and a desire to be famous so strong that we are happy to just push American citizens off of ledges where they will hopefully fall to their death or paralysis. So Steve Bannon, when they first went after him, said this is going to be the misdemeanor from hell. And it's starting to seem like maybe he was right about that. If the courts grant his motion to dismiss on any of these grounds, the January 6th committee is screwed. What will it mean for them to have to live in the future where everyone knows their committee is illegitimate? I cannot wait to get this decision. And hopefully justice will prevail, although the track record from the courts regarding the January 6th stuff is not good so far. So what's the upshot of the actual big lie? The actual big lie is that Joe Biden somehow secured 81 million real legal American votes. That is just blatantly false. And the country is coming to understand that not only from the evidence of election fraud, but also from the polling, which shows that the man they pretend was the most popular presidential candidate of all time is now historically unpopular because of how incompetent he is and how poor a job the fake administration is doing. People are understanding the fecklessness and illegitimacy regardless of the results of the 2020 election. And here is the sort of thing you will get with an illegitimate president. This is from Bloomberg on Monday. Oil from U.S. Strategic Reserve heads for Europe amid global supply crunch. Now, I posted this on Telegram on March 31st, three weeks ago, when Biden announced that he was going to deplete the strategic oil reserve ostensibly to help with our, you know, Trump and COVID caused problems like high gas prices and Putin's price hike. I wrote, this is the craziest thing yet. Is Biden releasing oil from the strategic oil reserves to help European countries who are about to have to buy in rubles? Is he just giving it to other global communists? It's their oil. Is the fake administration going to end up saying it was necessary to do for the purposes of the war against Putin? So that was me immediately upon hearing the news that Joe Biden was going to release oil from the strategic oil reserve. It was immediately clear that there was no way he was doing that to help Americans out. The administration has no interest in lowering gas prices in any significant way because they want people to stop driving gas powered cars. They've literally tried to lock you in your home for two years. Do you really think they want you to be able to travel around? They don't even want people to be able to go to work. They want people to go broke and then depend on the government for however long their short and diseased life continues. And if they're living too long, hey, there are more vaccines for that. We've got booster shots. You need a little cancer. Hey, you want an autoimmune deficiency syndrome? Here's a vaccine. A cargo of crude from the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve departed a Texas-bound port for Europe, a signal of increasing oil market disarray as refiners shun Russian supplies and prices surge. You got that? It's just some random event happening in the world. Refiners are shunning Russian supplies and the prices are surging. 
There's no connection to anything the fake administration is doing. The rare export, rare export of strategic U.S. barrels is evidence of the ever-widening search for crude to replace Russian cargoes seven weeks after President Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine triggered international revulsion and sanctions. Oh, revulsion. Yes, the international community's disgust with what Vladimir Putin is doing. That's what caused our problems. Now, during the Trump era, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve was held for strategic purposes, not to correct gas prices by a few cents for political purposes. The Strategic Petroleum Reserve should be thought of as part of our national security infrastructure. With the global oil benchmark trading above $110 a barrel, traders and refiners are also trying to cope with a cutoff of Libya's biggest source of crude and little expansion in U.S. output. Joe Biden, Joe Biden. Those are the global communists causing those problems. A tanker known as the Advantage Spring loaded low sulfur crude originally pumped from the Strategic Reserve Caverns in southwest Louisiana at a point in Netherlands, Texas, earlier this month, according to a person familiar with the matter. The ship, chartered by an affiliate of French energy giant Total Energies SE, is bound for the key European port of Rotterdam, according to ship tracking data compiled by Bloomberg. President Joe Biden, along with several allies, recently offered a portion of their strategic reserves for sale to help alleviate some of the supply pinch associated with the escalating war in Ukraine. Total Energies didn't respond to a request for comment. So American taxpayers funded the filling of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and now American taxpayers are funding the depletion of that reserve so that we can give it to European countries to make it possible for them to last a little longer before the real problems reach them. Because we got to keep that Ukraine war going for as long as possible. Ukraine might win. Oh, there's a 50-50 shot in the Donbass. This is the sort of thing that the Western media has been continuing to tell the child brains. Just keep following the comedic actor. Keep sending money over for the Ukrainian Nazis. Yes, we're arming them, but we don't really support them. And hey, they're not really Nazis while they're helping us. While they're helping us, they're just good, patriotic Ukrainians. Just like the ones who helped us overthrow Ukraine's government in 2014. Oh, that was Svoboda and other Ukrainian Nazis. Yeah, well, hey, they were not Nazis then either. And while we're on the subject of the fake president entirely selling out our country for the sake of the one world global communist order and its assets in Ukraine, this today is from Newsmax. U.S. doesn't know what happens to weapons sent to Ukraine. We were just told yesterday, by the way, that there was going to be another $800 million worth of stuff going out to Ukraine. These are just payoffs. That's it. It is just the beginning of another forever war. This time it's in Ukraine. They lost their cash cow in Afghanistan. So now they move it to Ukraine. Without U.S. troops in Ukraine, tracking the use of lethal aid to Ukraine amid Russia's invasion has shortcomings, including relying on the very beneficiary that would be inclined to keep asking for more. 
How the anti-tank, anti-aircraft and other weaponry are being used by Ukraine is going to be a bit of an unknown, but it will not stop the Biden administration from supplying those amid war, sources tell CNN. We have fidelity for a short time, but when it enters the fog of war, we have almost zero, a source told CNN. It drops into a big black hole and you have almost no sense of it at all after a short period of time. It's hard to track with nobody on the ground, a source added. The Biden administration is sending, quote, certainly the largest recent supply to a partner country in a conflict, according to a senior defense official. Thus far, the U.S. has transferred hundreds of millions in equipment, but the need to supply Ukraine is trumping the potential for the weapons winding up in the wrong hands, according to the report. Now, when you get a report that says, we don't know where this is going, but there's a chance it could end up in the wrong hands to me and probably to you by this point, that sounds like, oh man, Americans are going to find out that all their money and all these weapons we're sending are ending up in the hands of Ukrainian Nazis, and they might be mad eventually. So what we're going to do is tell them that something like that could happen. But if it does, it's going to be an accident. It will be because of the fog of war. And we were morally right in sending this these weapons and all of this aid over to Ukraine, even if it doesn't turn out to be a good thing. It could actually be a really terrible thing. We could find out that all we're doing is arming Ukrainian Nazis and other foreign mercenaries in Ukraine to keep waging war against Russia, even though Russia is not attacking the people of Ukraine. We could find that out. So what we need to do is give the people the understanding that something bad could happen, you know just in case it does, but it's a small chance. I mean, everything for sure is going fine. We're sending all of this directly to the comedic actor so that he can give it all to the Ukrainian citizens out on the street who are waging war against Russia. You got it? Child brains. That's all you need to know. They need money. Well, they need to close the sky, right? But we can't let them close the sky. So instead, we're just going to give them all this this money and all these weapons and the comedic actors got it all under control. Yes, sure. He looks like a uh, sweaty crackhead who has no idea what's going on and seems very desperate, but he is also a genius military leader. He learned all of it during his time pretending to be president on the TV show. It's basically an intro to president class. He learned all about it in Presidents of Corrupt Countries 101. The U.S. is forced to admit it is relying on Ukraine's honesty on the use of the aid and weapons, even if Ukraine might be inclined to only share information that keeps the supply from the U.S. ongoing. Now, we need to rely on the honesty of the government in Ukraine. Is that the same government that was making corrupt deals with the fake president's son? Yeah, it sure is. Is that the same Ukraine that is listed as the third or fourth most corrupt country in the world and now has to be seen as number one? Yeah, it is. But hey, let's send them $8.2 billion, which is where we are in total now. 
$8.2 billion of American taxpayer money to a foreign country because we're trying to protect the sovereignty of their borders, even though that is mythological when it comes to that area of the world. And we're supposed to ignore the fact of the Ukrainian bioweapons labs funded by the United States. And we're supposed to ignore the fact of Ukrainian Nazis also funded by the United States. And we might as well ignore that we have no idea where this money is going. And we have to keep giving them more because they say they need it. There is potentially billions in aid to come. It's a war. Everything they do and say publicly is designed to help them win the war. An intelligence source told CNN, every public statement is an information operation. Every interview, every Zelensky appearance broadcast is an information operation. It doesn't mean they're wrong to do it in any way. Uh, Yeah, all right. So they're not wrong to wage an information war if they are at war. Yeah, fine. From their perspective, that's true. That doesn't mean all of us just need to believe it forever just because it came out of the mouth of the comedic actor. And so they just get all our money because they say they need it. Both Russia and Ukraine are engaging in information warfare designed to bolster their positions in the war that began with Russia's invasion February 24th. Among the weapons are Javelin and Stinger missiles or the Slovakian S-300 air defense system, which are portable. Also on the way are 11 MI-17 helicopters, 18 155-millimeter howitzer cannons, and 300 more switchblade drones, according to the report. I couldn't tell you where they are in Ukraine and whether the Ukrainians are using them at this point, a senior defense official said last week. They're not telling us every round of ammunition they're firing and at who and when. We may never know exactly to what degree they've been using the switchblades. And in fact, we don't even know that these arms are in Ukraine and that they're not just simply being trafficked to other countries in the region, to other global communist strongholds. We don't know if there's some wider strategy so that they can actually try to initiate a war with Russia. We give them billions and billions of dollars And modern American armaments, there are foreign mercenaries over there. There are American private contractors over there. There are rumors that Americans are actually running the Ukrainian military right now. And we're just supposed to be like, yeah, okay, that sounds right. We don't need to know. I'm sure the comedic actors got it all under control. The location of the weapons is more concerning once the war concludes. According to Cato Institute, defense and foreign policy analyst Jordan Cohen to CNN. This could be a problem 10 years down the line, but that doesn't mean it shouldn't be something worth thinking about. Cohen, the Cato analyst, told CNN over 50 million rounds of ammunition. All that ammunition isn't just going to be used to fight Russians. Eventually, that ammunition is going to be misused, whether intentionally or not. And that's the end of the article. So there is a recognition from the beginning that all of these supplies will not be used against Russians, are not needed against Russians, and we don't know where they're going. They could go anywhere. They could literally be funding an arms trafficking thing and then keeping the profits from the sales of these arms to other entities in the region. 
So we ship out $800 million from America in supplies and armaments or whatever. Somebody else purchases them on the black market. And then the global communists just take the American people's money. And what do we get for it? Absolutely nothing. Because we actually don't have any interest in protecting Ukraine. They're not our country. And they're not our ally. We are only sold on the idea of comedic actor good, Hitler dictator Putin bad. It's a big country trying to take on a smaller country, which means we have to save them. They're the underdogs. Yes, they have Nazis, but we don't have to pay attention to that. They're not our Nazis. Yes, we're funding them. Yes, the CIA trained them. And yes, we're arming them. But they're not our Nazis. Right now, they're just Ukrainians. In fact, you know what? They're better than Ukrainians. Right now, those are Americans. That's basically what we're being told. You can't call them Nazis because they're on our side. And while we're in the region, here is another really interesting development. This is from Politico. Yesterday, Poland reneges on coronavirus vaccine contracts. Poland has unilaterally pulled out of its contractual commitments to buy the BioNTech Pfizer coronavirus vaccine. Health Minister Adam Niedzielski said Tuesday, citing oversupply and financial strains caused by the influx of millions of refugees fleeing the war in Ukraine. Speaking on all news channel TVN 24, Niedzielski said that the government in Warsaw had informed the European Commission and the vaccine suppliers late last week that it was invoking a force majeure clause in the procurement contract and would refuse both to pay for or take delivery of future doses. Now, this is very interesting. There is a clause in these contracts. The corporations, the pharma companies, create contracts with the governments around the world. And those contracts say that the governments need to purchase a certain supply of these vaccines and then obviously give them to the people. And that's why we're going to see these boosters keep coming no matter what the coronavirus looks like in actuality. The purchase agreements are already there, but the force majeure element is really interesting because what they're claiming is there was this thing, this event that happened, not necessarily an act of God, but something beyond our control. And now we can't live up to the contract that we signed. Sorry, Pfizer. And I love it. This is a beautiful move. We'll see where it heads. Niedzielski explained that the improving pandemic situation meant that there was less need for vaccines. The Ukrainian refugee crisis, meanwhile, had stretched the public finances. He added that the government had tried to reach a compromise, asking for deliveries to be staggered over the course of 10 years. But, quote, we encountered a complete lack of flexibility on the part of the producers. Niedzielski admitted that the move had put the government in a legal conflict with Pfizer, which is the EU's main supplier of coronavirus vaccines in partnership with Germany's BioNTech. Talks with other companies will begin soon, the minister said, adding he hoped they will show more flexibility. So Poland is straight up saying they don't need any more of the vaccines and they don't want to pay for them because they have other things to pay for. This should be what 
every country around the world does. But the problem is the politicians are tied into the World Economic Forum and they're tied into receiving payments from pharma companies. Too many people are getting rich off this and they do not want to stop receiving pharma company money and they do not want to deal with whatever the pharma companies might do for you breaking their contract. The commission negotiated supply deals with major vaccine makers on behalf of EU member countries and has also signed joint procurement contracts with Moderna, Johnson and Johnson and AstraZeneca, among others. Member states are bound by contractual obligations, but the commission understands the difficult position Poland is in, said commission spokesman Stefan D. Kiersmaker. Great name. He added that EU authorities would work to facilitate discussions and find a pragmatic solution. BioNTech and Pfizer declined to comment, saying only that they had an agreement with the European Commission to supply its COVID-19 vaccine to EU member states. Last month, Poland was one of 11 countries that called on the commission to create an EU fund to offset health costs for Ukrainians fleeing the Russian invasion. Poland has taken in by far the most Ukrainians of any EU member country, hosting nearly three million refugees. Poland's support of its neighbor Ukraine has won it plaudits throughout the bloc, but it hasn't been enough to unblock EU funds held back over rule of law concerns. Now, all of this makes me think back to last year when we were learning how much power the pharma companies are actually able to wield even against national governments. And there was a report on what was found in some of the Pfizer purchase agreements last fall. This is from Zane Rizvi of Citizen.org. This is from October 19th, 2021. In February, Pfizer was accused of bullying governments in COVID vaccine negotiations in a groundbreaking story by the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. A government official at the time noted, five years in the future when these confidentiality agreements are over, you will learn what really happened in these negotiations. Public Citizen has identified several unredacted Pfizer contracts that describe the outcome of these negotiations. The contracts offer a rare glimpse into the power one pharmaceutical company has gained to silence governments, throttle supply, shift risk and maximize profits in the worst public health crisis in a century. We describe six examples from around the world below. And so let's get into some of this stuff. Pfizer reserves the right to silence governments. In January, the Brazilian government complained that Pfizer was insisting on contractual terms and negotiations that were unfair and abusive. The government pointed to five terms that it found problematic, ranging from a sovereign immunity waiver on public assets to a lack of penalties for Pfizer if deliveries were late. The Bureau of Investigative Journalism soon published a scathing story on Pfizer's vaccine negotiations. Less than two months later, the Brazilian government accepted a contract with Pfizer that contains most of the same terms that the government once deemed unfair. Brazil waived sovereign immunity, imposed no penalty on Pfizer for late deliveries, agreed to resolve disputes under a secret private arbitration under the laws of New York and broadly indemnified Pfizer for civil claims. The contract also contains an additional term not included in other Latin American agreements reviewed by Public Citizen. The Brazilian government is prohibited from making any public announcement concerning the existence, subject matter or terms of the agreement 
or commenting on its relationship with Pfizer without the prior written consent of the company. Pfizer gained the power to silence Brazil. Brazil is not alone. A similar non-disclosure provision is contained in the Pfizer contract with the European Commission and the U.S. government. In those cases, however, the obligation applies to both parties. Pfizer controls the donations of vaccines. Pfizer tightly controls supply. The Brazilian government, for example, is restricted from accepting Pfizer vaccine donations from other countries or buying Pfizer vaccines from other countries without Pfizer's permission. The Brazilian government is also restricted from donating, distributing, exporting, or otherwise transporting the vaccine outside Brazil without Pfizer's permission. So they're Pfizer's vaccines. Brazil just pays for the right to hold them in its country and force them on its own citizens. But if they want to give them to another country because they don't need them and other countries do, well, no, you can't do that. That country's going to have to buy its own or we'll figure out a way to make the U.S. buy it. Because, well, America's got the most child brains who will still go along with anything the television tells them. So if we ever need more money for vaccines for other people besides Americans, well, we'll just tell the Americans to pay for it. And hey, there are at least 25 or 30 percent of Americans who think Joe Biden got 81 million real legal American votes. Those dumbasses will believe anything. And how about this? The consequences of noncompliance can be severe. If Brazil were to accept donated doses without Pfizer's permission, it would be considered an uncurable material breach of their agreement, allowing Pfizer to immediately terminate the agreement. Upon termination, Brazil would be required to pay the full price for any remaining contracted doses. That means they could be immediately on the hook for billions of dollars if Pfizer can say that they broke their end of the contract. The CEO of Pfizer, Albert Bourla, has emerged as a strident defender of intellectual property in the pandemic. He called a voluntary World Health Organization effort to share intellectual property to bolster vaccine production nonsense and dangerous. He said President Biden's decision to back the TRIPS waiver on intellectual property was so wrong. IP, which is the blood of the private sector, is what brought a solution to this pandemic, and it is not a barrier right now, claims Borla, right? So Pfizer has to hold the IP to their vaccines. They can't let other people know about it so that other producers can make the vaccines because it's not about fixing coronavirus. That is what they are telling you. If it was about curing the world from a very deadly pandemic, They would want as many people creating the vaccine as possible so as many people as possible could get the vaccine and the pandemic could end as quickly as possible. But of course, that's not what happened at all because the vaccine doesn't stop transmission or infection and it doesn't stop serious illness or death. In fact, it promotes all of those things. And beyond that, The vaccine side effects are indistinguishable from the symptoms of the coronavirus. So we not only have the people who created the disease creating the cure. We also have a situation where the cure is worse than the disease and a situation where the cure is actually just a worse form of the disease itself. But in several contracts, Pfizer seems to recognize the risk posed by intellectual property to vaccine development, manufacturing and sale. 
The contracts shift responsibility for any intellectual property infringement that Pfizer might commit to the government purchasers. As a result, under the contract, Pfizer can use anyone's intellectual property it pleases, largely without consequence. At least four countries are required to indemnify, defend, and hold harmless Pfizer from and against any and all suits, claims, actions, demands, damages, costs, and expenses related to vaccine intellectual property. And let's jump down a bit. Private arbitrators, not public courts, decide disputes in secret. What happens if the UK cannot resolve a contractual dispute with Pfizer? A secret panel of three private arbitrators, not a UK court, is empowered under the contract to make the final decision. The arbitration is conducted under the rules of arbitration of the International Chamber of Commerce. Both parties are required to keep everything secret. Private arbitration reflects an imbalance of power. It allows pharmaceutical corporations like Pfizer to bypass domestic legal processes. This consolidates corporate power and undermines the rule of law. Now, this one is really interesting regarding Poland. Pfizer can go after state assets. The decisions reached by the secret arbitration panels described above can be enforced in national courts. The doctrine of sovereign immunity can sometimes, however, protect states from corporations seeking to enforce and execute arbitration awards. Pfizer required Brazil, Chile, Colombia, the Dominican Republic and Peru to waive sovereign immunity. In the case of Brazil, Chile and Colombia, for example, the government expressly and irrevocably waives any right of immunity, which either it or its assets may have or acquire in the future to enforce any arbitration award for Brazil, Chile, Colombia and the Dominican Republic. This includes immunity against precautionary seizure of any of its assets. So if the secret court decides on Pfizer's behalf, these nations have to allow Pfizer to seize their assets. And the article goes on. I encourage you to check it out if you are interested in this subject. But how is this going to affect Poland? That is what we have to keep an eye on. Pfizer may well go after this. You would expect them to if everything else is normal, right? If it's just what we can see, if Poland's excuses for why they're not going to continue purchasing Pfizer vaccines is true, then we would probably expect Pfizer to pursue this in some sort of arbitration. But if Pfizer doesn't do that, we can't simply assume they don't care, like that they're just going to let Poland do their thing out of the goodness of their heart. I mean, maybe that's what they're doing. Maybe they're allowing Poland to keep more of their money so they can continue to support the hashtag stand with Ukraine. They can continue to support the one world global communist West. It could be that. But if it's not that, then maybe there's something else going on here. And I'm wondering if maybe this is the first sign of Pfizer having its wings clipped a little bit. Because Poland is asserting that they're not just breaking their contract. They're doing it because of circumstances beyond their control. And the circumstance they're referring to that's beyond their control is the global communist military event in Ukraine and the refugee crisis, in quotes, 
that that event is causing. Poland is saying we are being flooded with immigrants and we know what that is every time the global communists do it. They always find a root cause like climate change, right? Remember the water shortages in the Middle East, the climate change in the Golden Triangle. That's what's causing all of our immigration. It's not a slave trade initiated by the global communists with a full operation in place. No, it's just Guatemalans fleeing climate change. But Poland is moving away from their contract with Pfizer, one of the biggest and most powerful global communist entities. They are cutting ties for the coronavirus vaccine, and they're doing it on the basis of something else the global communists did. Now, I'm not saying that I know that this is firm and legitimate and this is what happened. But I am saying this is well worth keeping an eye on because I think that we're going to learn something more is going on here. And hey, call me crazy, right? I'm the conspiracy theorist. Yeah, for sure. I said three weeks ago, immediately when they announced the strategic oil reserve thing, I said immediately, Joe Biden is giving that to Europe. Three weeks later, turns out Joe Biden's giving that to Europe. How did I know that? Well, I intuited it because I follow these things. So, hey, maybe I'm wrong, but maybe it's just like three weeks ago and three weeks before that and three weeks before that and three weeks before that. And, you know, the whole time. Hey, what can I say? I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!